everyone and welcome to Chill Pill. My name is Emma Ives and I am the creator slash host of this fabulous podcast. I created this podcast since I love all things medicine. I love reading about it. I love talking about it. And my roommates were getting kind of sick and tired of hearing about it. I'm not a medical professional, so I'll never give any advice on the medical stuff. Please seek out your primary care physician for advice. I will link all my sources in the description as well as mention them throughout the podcast. Welcome back. I went on a little hiatus to take the PCAT, sorry about that, but I'm very excited that it's now over, so now I can apply to pharmacy school. Hopefully all of you are staying safe out there during this pandemic. There is still a pandemic going on, even if some states are going back to normal. I'm doing air quotes even though you can't see me. I believe that this pandemic will cause that word to have a new definition. I wanted to do a podcast to address COVID-19. The last one I did about pandemics covered how media discussed pandemics, which was when COVID was relatively new and we weren't in lockdown. So I thought I'd do another pandemic-themed episode. We're going to discuss herd immunity, what it is, how it works, and why it's being so heavily associated with COVID. The word herd immunity is getting thrown around quite a lot but you've probably only heard of it in your high school biology class during the chapter on the immune system. Typically, herd immunity is associated with vaccines. If a population is not immune to a disease, the disease can spread quickly through that population. Now, if a portion of this population is immune, the disease will not spread as fast. This is why having high numbers of people vaccinated works. There are a number of people who cannot receive vaccines for medical reasons. If a large portion of the population is vaccinated, and a disease enters this population, those who are not vaccinated and are highly susceptible are now protected. However, this only works if a significant portion of the population is vaccinated. I'm talking close to 95-99% of a population, depending on the disease. As soon as these numbers start to drop, herd immunity has less of a chance of working. The speed a disease moves through a population is shown through R0, also denoted R0. You'll have heard of this if you've either watched Contagion, which is a really great movie with Matt Damon and Gwyneth Paltrow, or played the board game Pandemic, which I've been doing a lot of in quarantine. R0 isn't some made-up Hollywood thing. It's the reproduction number for a particular disease. This is the number of average cases an infected person will cause during the period that they are infected. There are two different kinds of reproduction numbers. The basic reproduction number is an estimate describing what would happen if an infectious person entered a population not immune to a disease. This is the number of people that they would infect during that time. The effective reproduction number is dependent on the population's immunity to the disease. It can be affected by vaccination or prior exposure. This number is a more realistic number and typically lower than basic reproduction number, but both effective and basic are dependent on different scenarios. It's not a fixed property. They are affected by how infectious the pathogen is, how immunocompromised the population is, environmental factors, and population density. So how do we interpret this number? R0 is used to describe the intensity of a potential outbreak. Typically, the higher the number, the more infectious a disease. For example, R0 for measles is between 12 and 18, depending on population density and life expectancy. On the other hand, influenza virus has an R0 from 0.9 to 2.1, meaning less people will get infected in a short amount of time and large-scale outbreaks are not as common. However, influenza has the ability to mutate. This means that if you get the flu one year, you will probably get it again the next year. 
since your body doesn't recognize the mutated virus. The median reproduction number for COVID-19 is about 5.7. This number fluctuates regularly and is influenced by all the factors previously mentioned. Recently, COVID is being compared to the 1918 influenza pandemic that killed more than 50 million people. So I wanted to break down the 1918 pandemic and look at some numbers. A study in 2007 used morbidity data, the number of people who got influenza but didn't necessarily die from it, from Europe, America, and confined spaces, to estimate effective and basic reproduction numbers. They found the basic reproduction number, 2.4 to 4.3 in a community setting, and 2.6 to 10.6 in a confined setting. This means that in a totally susceptible population, one person transmitted the disease to about two to four people in their community. The effective reproduction number was 1.2 to 3 in a community setting and 2.1 to 7.5 in a confined setting. This assumed that the population gained some immunity between the waves of the virus. The study concluded this data confirmed the 1918 outbreak had a low transmissibility, which was also found by many other studies. So if the transmissibility was low, how did it kill so many people? The biggest factor was time. World War I saw many young people sent all over the world to fight. They live and fought in crowded conditions, and as they moved across Europe, any diseases that were picked up while they were away would spread. In addition, the medical technology we take for granted today, like masks, were virtually non-existent. No antibiotics, no flu vaccines, no ventilators, no disease surveillance, and not very many health professionals, because they were conscripted to fight in the war. There were not many ways to quarantine, and hospitals were so overcrowded. The pandemic also came in three waves. The second wave was the peak of the pandemic in the U.S. It was the deadliest, accounting for the majority of U.S. deaths. Based on these conditions, it's no wonder the 1918 pandemic killed more people than the war. The virus didn't discriminate. It didn't just kill the young and the old like a typical seasonal flu, but it also killed healthy 25 to 35-year-olds. How did they stop the 1918 flu pandemic? The answer is not very well. It was up to local officials to set safeguards and plans for their own cities, because there was no oversight from the U.S. federal government. Soldiers returning home made it even worse. Many cities felt the need to appear patriotic because of the war and did not regulate public gatherings or face coverings. This resulted in spikes of flu in those areas who did not choose to put in curfews. Some cities put in quarantine. They closed businesses, schools, shops, and required people to wear masks or risk a fine. These places saw a decreased number in cases. With no vaccine, there was no choice but to wait it out. People either developed immunity or they died. By the summer of 1919, the pandemic officially came to an end. But wait, COVID-19 isn't influenza, you say? That's right. They aren't even in the same family. Let's look at its cousin, severe acute respiratory syndrome, a viral respiratory illness caused by a coronavirus called SARS-associated coronavirus, or SARS-CoV. In November of 2002, a case of atypical pneumonia was reported in southern China. By March 12, 2003, the WHO issued a global alert for a severe form of pneumonia of unknown origin in persons from China, Vietnam, and Hong Kong. And then things got a whole lot worse. Three days later, it had a name. The symptoms were vague and stereotypical of a flu such as high fever, aches, dry cough, and eventually pneumonia. 
but it had the ability to infect 8,096 people and kill 774. By July of the same year, it was just gone. Now, COVID-19 has not followed the same timeline, but there are some similarities that could be useful in slowing the spread of COVID-19. Both viruses are alike in name, as well as they share 86% of their genome. They have the same receptor for cell entry, called ACE2, in the respiratory tract. This is how the virus enters the cell and hijacks it for its own use, causing the infection. The virus is transmitted through respiratory droplets, which is why masks are crucial to slowing the spread of COVID-19. Both share some similarities to SARS-like coronaviruses that have been isolated in bats. This suggests that SARS-CoV and SARS-CoV-2 might have originated in bats. Onset of acute respiratory distress syndrome follows the same timeline with both viruses. This is where the similarities end. SARS was brought under control in a matter of months without a vaccine. It doesn't look like COVID-19 is stopping anytime soon. SARS saw cases concentrated to five specific countries and regions. It was able to be contained by virtually interrupting all human-to-human transmission through surveillance, isolation of patients, quarantine of contacts, and community-level quarantines. COVID-19 spread to 46 countries in the first two months of the pandemic, with more cases and deaths than SARS. There are several reasons for the increased spread. One is the difference in the infection period. For COVID, it appears that most transmission takes place before the individual is symptomatic. There are also a lot more asymptomatic carriers than SARS. Therefore, while isolating a person with symptoms helps prevent some transmission, it does not prevent all. With SARS, a majority of transmission happened when symptoms were present. Another reason is it is believed COVID has a higher transmission rate than SARS, causing it to spread quicker in a susceptible community. COVID also has a clinical spectrum not found in SARS. When the first cases were reported, it was only the pneumonia-like symptoms. However, we know COVID symptoms range from mild to severe. This caused certain patients to be missed in the beginning because their symptoms did not match the most severe cases being reported. SARS cases were mostly confined to hospitals where COVID had widespread community transmission. The only way to contain community spread is to lock down and quarantine the community. These stark differences are what make COVID more widespread than SARS. There is currently no cure for COVID-19. However, Moderna is one of the companies leading the charge in finding a vaccine. The National Institutes of Health sponsored a phase one study using Moderna's mRNA vaccine. Although it's still early in the clinical trial process, the results of the study were positive. The vaccine generated neutralizing antibodies in healthy adults targeting the coronavirus spike protein. This is the protein that allows coronavirus to enter cells and cause infection. There were no adverse events, which is great. However, there were some reports of fatigue, injection site pain, headaches, and chills. A downside of this study was the size. The results published were from 45 participants between the ages of 18 and 55 years old. This very small sample size gives a good starting point to design phase two and phase three efficacy studies, which have both been approved. But it's too early to predict how the rest of the trials will work out. According to Dr. Fauci, we'll probably not see a vaccine for a while. As I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, herd immunity is being thrown around when discussing the coronavirus. And here are some things to remember. Herd immunity is fixed and predictable in the context of vaccination. During a pandemic without a vaccine, this threshold is fluid and dependent on how the virus is responding in a population. 
For COVID-19, an article from The Atlantic speculated that the herd immunity would need to be between 20% and 70%. But wait, before you run outside without your masks on, this is assuming that immunity is conferred with infection. No one currently knows how long immunity lasts or that infected people become immune reliably. Based on past global outbreaks, in my personal opinion, and remember, I'm not a medical professional, but I've done a lot of research for this podcast, letting coronavirus run wild will only increase the death toll and prolong the pandemic. Sitting around and waiting for a vaccine, and this is still my personal opinion, will not work. According to Dr. Fauci, because of a general anti-science, anti-authority, and anti-vaccine feeling, the U.S. is unlikely to achieve herd immunity even after a vaccine is available, which will further increase the cases. The belief in waiting around for herd immunity is dangerously misleading. According to Shaweta Bensal of Georgetown University, a herd immunity threshold very much depends on how individuals behave. It has been shown that small things like wearing a mask and social distancing have had great effects on slowing the growth of cases. So in a sense, it is how we as humans behave that have the greatest impact on our herd immunity. The phrase, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it, seems appropriate in this context. The 1918 flu pandemic, SARS, as well as countless other global outbreaks have taught us what does and what does not work when it comes to containing the spread of infection and saving lives. But the anti-science mentality has impeded individuals from taking this pandemic seriously. The evidence of inaction is there. It's called history. I am not a medical professional, so please consult your primary care physician for advice if you were intrigued by anything you heard today. I do all my own research, and my sources are linked in the description, so please give all those scientists your love. The intro music was done by Cooper Wood, and the artwork was done by me. You can follow me on Twitter at CP underscore capital with Emma Ives, and Instagram at at chillpill with Emma Ives. Thanks for listening to Chill Pill, and remember, be kind and wear a mask. <laughs>